As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This is The Athletic Hockey Show. Welcome back, everybody. It is your Monday edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. Dean Mendes, Julian McKenzie with you for the next, well, we'll call it an hour or so coming up. Uh, we've got a couple of guests on the Monday episode of the podcast. Justin Davis former hockey player going to drop by to chat about his book conflicted scars i'm looking forward to that conversation we'll talk a little bit about his path to uh you know where he is today and um, his connection to akeem aliu and uh, you know it, it's an interesting story so justin is going to drop by max boltman the red hot red wings come on like you know the the other guy i was thinking we could have got julian yes what's charlie o'connor doing right now Oh, Flyers are two he, and zero. Oh. oh, what? They're two and zero. Oh? You know, when when our producer Chris Flannery said, "Hey, you know, maybe we could grab a writer this week," I guess my mind immediately went to Boltman because Detroit's in the same division and having a great start. But I gotta tell you, the Philadelphia Flyers. You want to talk about teams that you didn't think would be two and zero? Oh? How good is it wow. to be a Philadelphia sports fan? By the way, right now, Eagles yes. are undefeated. Phillies are in the NLCS. Uh, Sixers are a legitimate, uh, you know, East contender. And, oh, yeah, the 
The Flyers are two and zero. The funny What's thing is the Flyers, on? the Flyers beat teams that. Uh, I mean, I think those teams, Vancouver, New Jersey, probably expected a little better of themselves. I mean, I've heard people mention the Devils as a sleeper pick. The Canucks might be a team that sneaks into the Pacific Division playoffs. So those teams are probably feeling a little crappier now at the expense of the Philadelphia Flyers, a team who like we we talk about guys with beats who I think like, man, you know, you know, being in people look at me in Calgary's like, man, you got a really good team over there. They look really great. Or man, you're covering um, uh, or Edmonton, like the Edmonton Oilers should be really great. I would love to see the carnage that could go down in Philadelphia with John Tortorella being there. And like, I, I think Charlie O'Connor is one of the most envious as one of the coolest gigs just off the fact that the, the potential of, of craziness that could happen. I did not think they would be two at any point during this season. I would love to you know, know how he feels about that. Maybe every Monday on the pod with you and I, we crown a Jack Adams winner of the week. Oh, I like that. It's torts right now. Isn't it? <laughs> It's towards Dude. he's the Jack Adams winner of the week. Man, I look, Jack, I'll say this. John Tortorella, for his curmudgeonness, uh, is a good coach. I, I'll say this about John Tortorella. I will disagree with with how he views certain things with regards. Remember when he got he got everyone all in a tizzy about Connor Zegers. David and playing defense oh. and Trevor Zegris and all that. <laughs> like, like yeah. he got a, he got pre as a media guy, like if you're ESPN. You say thank you for your services. You're getting people to talk about hockey and getting people mad at your opinions. One thing I could never say about John Tortorella, I could never question that man's coaching credentials and how he is capable of somehow getting the most out of teams that probably don't need to be doing all that well. We saw what he did in Columbus. We don't need to get into Tampa Bay. We know he won that chip there, but like... Man, good for him that he's two and zero. He gets the Tampa Bay Lightning tomorrow, uh, but like, good for good for the Flyers. Good, they're a lot better than we thought they would be. It's two games though, but good for them. Yeah, everything is couched with the it's two games. Unless you're San Jose and you're zero and four, then it's like, oh damn, it's four games. No, no, no. Hey, listen, we 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 don't want to you know beat down on the bottom dollars. I want to ask you though, you had your first taste of a regular season battle of Alberta. Young Cub reporter Julian McKenzie gets on Highway 2, yes. makes his way up. Now, now, you drove from Calgary to Edmonton, I assume? I did makes, drive the three make, hours up the, Highway 2. You're absolutely drive. right. Does he pull off at Red Deer to, to get something to eat, or what, what happens? You go all I should have done that. I should have done that. I, I drove the whole three hours, and by hour, like, by two and a half, I was like, this is a boring-ass drive. Now, did you, <laughs> but did I survived. You, I I uh, just did the drive to Buffalo because I, for me to fly from Ottawa to Buffalo is just pointless. Like you you can't go direct, so I, I'd prefer to drive. So I did a great. I downloaded podcasts, including uh, I I wanted to to listen in on Haley Salvian, mm. how she's doing with Jen Tilly, the Friday show. That oh sorry, they call it the Friday show because they record on Thursdays. They run it on Friday. That was good. Uh, um, good. What'd you do to pass the time? The three hour drive. I have like a playlist of just music that I like to put together. You, I, when I was you strike so, me as a yacht rock guy. Am I right on that? What's yacht rock? <laughs> what does that mean? I have no idea what that even means. I, exactly why I knew you were a yacht rock guy. What the? Hell I need is you to look yacht up rock? yacht rock at I'm some do point that right now. No, yacht rock. Do How do you not right know now? what yacht rock is? Yacht rock is a 
Okay, I'm just reading the Wikipedia definition. Is a broad music style and aesthetic commonly associated with soft rock, one of the most commercially successful genres from the 70s and mid-80s. Okay, who's an example of yacht rock? Like, who, give me an artist. Ah, I think like like uh, like almost like James Taylor type of, uh, you know what I mean? Like that kind of, <laughs> I love it. This is great. What the hell is this? I oh, love it. Julian Vampire Weekend it. counts as, oh, wait a minute. Y- Vampire Weekend? Thundercat? Oh, oh. In fact, actually, in this Wikipedia article, they mentioned a very specific song by Thundercat that has uh, Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald called Show You there The you Way. Oh, that Christopher counts as Cross. Rock. Okay. Christopher Cross is like the classic, I think, sorry, I think I said James. I mean, Christopher Cross, I think, is a... Anyway, okay. There you go. So All we right. can we can do we, we know that you didn't do yacht rock. I was no, joking. I, I knew I tried not I knew to. That. Uh but I, I did listen to uh a lot of music on my way there. And at one point I, I called my grandma like just before I was getting into Edmonton, just like checking in on her and stuff. But uh I find for drives, like oh. like podcast like there's a few podcasts I might enjoy, but I try to just listen to music that I know I'm going to be upbeat for and I'll sing along to tap my steering wheel. That just keeps me awake, especially if it's like a long drive. I'm just looking through a lot of pastures. It's just a lot of a lot of the same things. If I start hearing people's voices, I might start falling asleep. But if I hear like a really good song, I'm like, oh, this song is on like that. That's going to keep me awake, especially for like a three hour drive. Okay, so if you're susceptible to falling asleep at the wheel, I don't suggest Yacht Rock. No, no, okay. but I'm and glad by the way, I now know what Yacht Rock is. Yeah, there you go. See, we try and teach you something every week on uh, on the Monday <laughs> pod. Uh, and by the way, smart move to slide a quick call into your grandma because now, now that makes it impossible for me to mock you, make fun of you because everyone's like, oh, that's really sweet. And I like this guy for the rest of the podcast. He's my grandma. Yeah, exactly. I was not, you know, I even called her on my way out of Edmonton too. I called her going into yeah. Edmonton. I called her on my way out. Now, of is Edmonton. your is your grandma a, uh, she actually, a sports fan? Yeah. No, she's not a sports fan. My grandfather, uh, who's no longer with us, uh, was a longtime Boston Bruins fan and a uh, Tottenham Hotspur fan. Now, what made him a Bruins fan? Yeah, my hypothesis is that for anyone who immigrated to Quebec like I guess like the fifties or sixties or seventies or something. And they just kind of didn't see themselves on those Canadian teams or whatever, which were obviously like very emblematic of like the culture Francaise and Quebecois. Like maybe they end up adopting other teams like a Boston. I have another family friend who also immigrated from the Caribbean and they wanted nothing to do with the Canadians. And they became like a St. Louis blues fan. Um, you look at people who live in like indigenous communities like Ganawage in Quebec. Like, not only are they all Bruins fans, in like 2019, when they were in the Stanley Cup final against St. Louis, I remember working at CTV at the time, and we got a call from um the Mohawk Council in that area. They called the station and said, if the Bruins win the Stanley Cup in game seven, we are gonna hold a parade in our community. So I, I think I generally think there's like a weird um POC immigrant culture thing from some of the earlier decades of the 20th century where they didn't want to hop on the bandwagon of the Canadians and they ended up just saying, okay, we're going to cheer for all these other different teams See? for very different reasons. So that's why I think, I think my grandfather was like a Bruins fan just because he just didn't want to, he didn't want to vibe with the Canadians. He just wanted to be different. He just wanted to cheer for this, this other team. So he was okay. a Bruins fan for a good chunk of his life. 
let me th- blow your theory up a smidge. My sure. parents immigrated uh, to Canada in the 1970s. And my dad, obviously a person of color, jumps right on that Canadian's bandwagon. They right exist. there. <laughs> right the there. The Cotri family. The Cotri family like yeah. immigrated to 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 London and they're yeah. all Canadians fans. So to my point, like it's not everybody. Like it, there definitely exists. I think uh, my dad became a Dallas Cowboys and a Montreal Canadiens fan. So thank That's God I, he could have been a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. He could like you know, he could have been anybody. The 70s were the time of dynasties, right? The, the, the 90s, I'll tell you what, Julian. The 70s were a time of sports dynasties and yacht rock. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you have to give me your top five yacht rock artists. Like, I, all I know is Christopher Loggins Cross. I, Damn. I, I'm a, yeah, I like Kenny Loggins. A little Danger Zone. But I don't think Danger Zone is yacht rock. Uh, yacht rock, is it? That's fair. Have you watched the new Top Gun, by the way? I did. I love it. I, see, I was worried. I'll be honest with you. And I'm, don't worry. Listen, we're going to get right back to hockey talk here. Don't worry. We will. Because um, Max Boltman's going to join us in a moment. Uh, I was worried because I saw it late. Like I saw it like six weeks in and everyone was like, hey, this is the best. So I, I was worried that the bar was set unreasonably high so that when I did watch it, I'm like, nah, it was good, but it wasn't as good as everybody said. I came out of that theater. I'm like high-fiving people. Like this is the best movie I've seen in the summer. <laughs> It's the best, it's the most fun I've had watching a movie in a movie theater probably since uh, Marvel Endgame or Infinity War. It's the most fun I've had in a long time watching a movie. Most fun I've had since Mrs. Doubtfire. Ooh, that was, that was that's a good movie. I didn't watch it in theaters, but that was that's a fun movie. That's a really good yeah. movie. You subtly say that because you know you weren't born when Mrs. Doubtfire came no. out. I get it. I get it. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, Julian. You know what? You know when you you look at somebody and you're like, that 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 person's living my life? I feel like Max Boltman's living my life. <laughs> I'm supposed to be covering the upstart team that's 2-0. Not him. <laughs> that's my life. That's my life. <laughs> oh, that's my good. God. I need to know how the other half is doing because I'll tell you what, Ottawa and Detroit, a lot of people thought this, this was going to be a neck-and-neck uh, race this season, and look, it's only two games in, but let's be honest here. I'm sure the moods couldn't be any different uh, between Ottawa and Detroit. Max Boltman joins us uh, here on the Athletic Hockey Show on a Monday. So give us a sense, Max, of the excitement level after years of missing the playoffs in Detroit, off to a 2-0 and start. What's the temperature in that city? I feel like what I'm supposed to do right now, Ian, is is be really polite and tell you Oh, you know, it's it's nothing. You know, it's it's like you're out to dinner and you order something. Everyone goes, it looks good, and you have to downplay. No, it's it's just okay because yeah. You know, but you know what? Like I've been food logging. En- home. I'm, I'm suffering from food envy. Right now. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've been logging uh, into read the comments on my story so far, and everyone's happy and positive. And after I know you've lived the exact same last five years that I have, where uh, you don't <laughs> usually even get to Thanksgiving before everyone's that you know ready to burn it down. Uh, that, that part has been a relief. And I think there is definitely some real excitement in Detroit, uh, around this team. And, you know, it's on the radio and, and, you know, in Canada, I know that's, that's the, the hockey's always on the radio, but here, you know, it's, it's lions, lions, Michigan football, Michigan state football. Um, uh, and I, I, they were talking about it on my way uh, home today. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely palpable excitement, uh, I would say around the team and, and now we'll see if they can keep it going. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the thing is you, you open the season up with a, a win that I think was exactly what they needed over Montreal. 
and then they go out and they win the second out of a back-to-back against New Jersey. They're going to get their first real test, though, I think, tonight in an L.A. team that made the playoffs last year. Um, and, and I'm really curious to see how that goes for them. What were the expectations before the season started? Like, Ottawa did what they did in the offseason, and there were people that were saying, hey, you know what? This team might actually make the jump into a playoff contention. There are some people who who definitely felt that. I know for me, I wasn't sure if Detroit was ready to do that. Were fans in Detroit, were people in Detroit thinking like, hey, the Red Wings, like this is the year they should be in the playoffs? Like they should be that third or fourth team? Probably fourth, I guess. Uh, not expecting, but I, but very much wanting to be convinced, I would say. Like, uh, you know, the the broader landscape in Detroit you know, it's it's the Lions, it's the Tigers, it's the Pistons, it's the Red Wings. Not only have none of those teams been good for a long time, there have been some false starts. This was supposed to be the year the Tigers were good and, and potentially challenged for a playoff spot. That went off the rails really fast. And so it wasn't so much that I think people here were expecting the Red Wings to, to make the playoffs um, or even still expect the Red Wings to make the playoffs. I do not expect them to make the playoffs. Um, but I think there's been a lot of just hope of like, man, if, if they could really threaten if they could make this interesting into March. I think that's the hope. They want to see fun hockey. And, and you know, it's been a while since there's been that for, for a long stretch of the season. So I think that maybe it's more hope than expectation. I, I don't think anyone, too many people at least, have been going around expecting the playoffs, but but hoping for something like that. Is there one change or one different thing you've seen with, with Derek Lalonde as the head coach that you can – I know it's early, but maybe even just through training camp and now the first week of the regular season, you're like, oh yeah, that that's different than what uh, than what Jeff Blashill did. This is a great question because I, I think uh, when you have a new coach, like I, I think what can get lost sometimes is a lot of coaches want the same broad things. They want to defend well, you know, that they, they want teams that can play a certain way. You'll hear these things from coaches who, you know, you'd think they're different, but but they really ultimately want the same things. Two that jump out to me. Number one is on the penalty kill. The Red Wings have been uh, a lot more aggressive on the PK than I think I saw them in the last few years under Jeff Blaschel. That stood out right away. And the other thing I think is the way that they've defended the neutral zone, um, I think has, I, you know, I'm not like a super savvy X's and O's guy. So maybe I'm going to out myself a little bit here. I don't know exactly what is different about it, but I know that there's a lot more pressure on the opposing team as they try to carry it in to just dump it in. And I think it's been effective so far. Those are the two things that stand out. Could I tell you exactly how they've accomplished that? To my shame, I couldn't, but those those stand out to me as uh, as priorities and differences. What about players in terms of players who have stood out to you the most? Uh, one guy is Dominic Kubalik, and you know I, he comes in, and I think everyone remembers his rookie year was outstanding in Chicago, 30 goals. So you know the talent is there, but it had kind of taken steps in the other direction, specifically last year. Um, and you weren't quite sure what what was going to be the situation when he walked in. Uh, obviously, you see the goal scoring talent right away. The shot is excellent. But what I have been surprised by uh, pleasantly is is how hard of a forechecker he's been. He's got a big body, uh, but I think he's really worked off the puck in, in a way that he's going to be on the top line tonight um, in place of Tyler Bertuzzi, who's out four to six weeks with an upper body injury. Um, I think obviously everyone saw him block a shot with what looked like his hand. Pretty easy to connect the dots there. Um, Kubalik's going to get the first crack at, at taking his spot next to Dylan Larkin and Lucas Raymond. The other guy's a guy, Julian, you're, you're well familiar with Ben Sherratt. I think he's made a, a pretty instant impact on the top pair, um, for them physicality wise. And, and that's another area of their game, uh, to Ian's point, uh, you know, what's going to be different. I think they want to be a lot more physical and Ben Sherratt is that all day. I, I'm you know, when you look at the first two games, they've only given up two goals and obviously goaltending 
big part of that, you know, Vili Huso and, and Alex Nedeljkovic, good to start the season. But the goalie, I think most Detroit fans might be excited about, certainly the one that, that we're interested in, or I'm interested in is Sebastian uh, Kosa. Or Kosa. Is it Kosa or Kosa? I always... I, Kosa, I yeah. Both. Kosa. Uh, interesting, or, or kind of, maybe you could just lay this out. Lay this out for our listeners. Their plan with Kosa this year is uh, is going to be interesting. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of attention. This is a first-round draft pick, a guy that you think, you know, two to three years from now is going to be the guy when Detroit is is ready to be a contender. But what what's kind of the the, the plan for him this season? Because it's, you know, it's it's certainly interesting the way that they're handling their, their young netminder. It really is. And it's kind of a million-dollar question. I don't know that we even still have a full grasp on what the plan is for, for Sebastian Kosa. He was sent to, uh, you know, the minor leagues and, and obviously assigned to Toledo for the opener. He plays really, from what I understand, has a really good game um, in, in the opener. Chris Peters, who, who joins us on the Friday Prospect Show, was, was I think at that game and tweeted about it. Um, and then I, he was recalled uh, to Grand Rapids, but but not, you know, didn't dress from what I saw in the press box. So I, I'm kind of curious as to what exactly is going on there. You do not usually see uh, recent first round pick goalies in the ECHL just in the second season after their draft. Um, that is pretty uncommon. Um, I know that what the Red Wings are prioritizing with him, they think above all he needs reps and they want him to be challenged. The ECHL can be that. They, they are pretty deep in the AHL in terms of goaltending. Uh, Okunwara and, and Bradstrom, both guys that I think they feel like can can play for them and give them good minutes. Um, but Kosa took a big step forward from what I can gather this fall. I mean, from the previous times I had seen him, real noticeable difference. Uh, to me, uh, his his prospect tournament was strong and he just kept it up into the preseason. So um, I'm very curious to see where does he end up playing the, the lion's share of his games this year because they have set its reps. Seems like they're willing to do that in the ECHL, even though that is a little unprecedented, but maybe he gets some time around GR as well. I'm I'm honestly not sure that I could tell you specifically what the plan is going to be this year right now. I want to go back to my expectations question for a second. As someone obviously not in the Detroit market, not as familiar with the the fan base and how they react to certain things, I still find it really incredible. This is a franchise that has been had spent all those years in the playoffs and they find themselves on the outside looking in. And we know they're they're doing everything they can to get the team ready so they can be a contender one day. They've spent all these years accumulating all these good prospects. We know about the offseason that they just had. Um, I'm curious about the patience of Red Wings fans. Like, what is that like? Like, is it how have they been so patient over the lot, the better part of like the last five years? Or maybe they just haven't been patient. Like, what can you tell me about that aspect of Red Wings fans? No, this is one of the most fascinating things to me is that when I got onto this beat in 2018, um, there was kind of a desire to embrace a rebuild. Um, I, I think fan, it was kind of the very beginning of it. I think 2017 is what I would consider the start of the rebuild. And I would think kind of 2018, 19 is what I think where fans really realized, uh, that it was going to be a full scale rebuild. And I think they've bizarrely, they had bizarrely for a while, they're gotten more patient. And I think the reason is because Steve Eiserman arrived and obviously he's got yeah. a ton of institutional trust from his career as a player, as well as what fans saw him do in Tampa. I think the Red Wings by putting Steve Eiserman in charge of this and as kind of the face of this rebuild, I, I don't know that he likes the phrase Eiser plan, um, but I think it, it does resonate with fans, right? Uh, to, to just this idea that, well, you know, Eiserman's got it, right? I, I think that has, is what's allowed them to stay pretty patient. Um, 
I, I think there is an eagerness, like I said, a real hope and an eagerness for it to turn the corner and, and be in the playoffs. But if they don't make it this year, I don't think that fans are gonna are gonna say like, well, what the heck? I, I think I think they will be understanding of it. In fact, when the Red Wings went out and made all their moves this offseason, those additions, um, one of the fairly common questions I heard was, are, are they doing this too fast? Are they trying to accelerate this too quick? Which is too fast. Yeah, you just never hear that, right? Like, so it has surprised me. I I think. And I think it all comes back to who the GM is and how much fans trust him. He's kind of has a um, amount of of uh, buy in of credibility with with the fan base that is just so rare in pro sports. Man, I feel like just just looking at what's going on in Detroit and thinking a little bit about what's going on in Montreal. If I was in charge of an NHL franchise somewhere and I knew we had to go through a rebuild have some former player be among the faces of that rebuild who was like very skilled and obviously knows a thing or two about hockey. And I feel like that plays into the patience a little bit. I just a limited sample size, but that's what I'm thinking. It's risky too, though, because imagine they fail and you someday have to fire a guy who is beloved as a player, right? And it, it is not, not everyone is going to be Joe Sackick, Steve Eiserman, and have the kind of managerial success they did as a player. It, there is a risk there. Like you, ha- I think the confidence level has to be really high. And and obviously, what Eiserman did in Tampa made that probably easier for Detroit. Um, but it, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I went to the University of Michigan, and the football coach there, Jim Harbaugh, um, mm-hmm. you know, recently having quite a bit of success. But for there was some years there where that was looking rocky. I don't know how many of our listeners follow you know American college football, but like. There, Michigan football under Jim Harbaugh had some years where there were some people saying are they gonna have to fire him, whatever. He's turned it around quite well, but but that is the risk that you run when you have these franchise icons. Yes, it does get you some extra buy-in, but it can make for a really really painful uh, end if if it if it comes to that. And to clarify with Montreal, I know Saint Louis wasn't a former player with the Canadians. It's just he was a former. No, player. No, no, for sure, for sure. Clarified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, what I would do in Montreal, I'd bring in like. Bring in somebody who is super polarizing with the fan base, like a whipping boy, like Patrice uh, Brisebois. Patrice Brisebois. You bring him in and then just let the chaos reign supreme. That's what I would like. Yeah. <laughs> so, franchise somebody who's now. just going to eat it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, when you know it's going to be a tough stretch, bring in. I think they have him as an ambassador, funny enough. Oh, I, think they, I think Patrice Brisebois. <laughs> Because like they started bringing in some more, um, uh, like 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 uh, Chris Nyland is one, Vincent Dalfos is one. I think Patrice Brisebois. I saw him in one of those Canadians videos where they have like you know more of the older players as ambassadors. I think Patrice is one. It's funny though. Every market has like the and and t- well, tell me, Max, you tell me. Over the years, every fan base, there's like one whipping boy, and it's always a defenseman. <laughs> is this is this accurate or not? When I got like, here, it was Jonathan Erickson. Yeah. Uh, he was the one that every fan wanted to blame every single thing on. Yeah. Uh, it, it evolved into Abdelkader, Franz Nielsen, and then back to last year, it was Danny DeKaiser. Um, okay, so they, they moved back to defense then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's there's like, we could probably come up with a, Sean McIndoe could come up with a great like, you know, formula for who's your whipping boy. And it would be like, he's over 30. He makes X amount of dollars over More four and a half million, million dollars. Right, yeah. exactly. He, uh, he gets caved in uh, on analytics. Yep. He's oh, yeah. been, the analytics have to be terrible. Coaches love him. They right. talk about the, playing a hard game. That's right. The coach talks him up and, and he's yeah. been with the team for like at least three years so that fans yeah. can't, you know, no one can be like, oh, well, you know, he's still getting his life. Like he's got to have been there and 
they got to be able to say, no, no, we've, we've seen what we need to see. Get him out of the lineup so we can get our 20 year old fourth round pick in. Who's got to be the savior. (laughs) Yeah. It's that's see, that's every fan base's uh, journey. (laughs) Hey, before, before we let you go, I got to ask you this because I think this is one of the great stories of the year. We have so much focus on Patrick Kane and so much focus on some of these, you know, pending UFAs, Dylan Larkin. This is going to be really interesting. And I know you've written about this. Yep. Uh, the Matt Barzell comparison that you've you've brought it up, then Pierre LeBron straight out stealing from you. No, okay, no, but, no. I, I, I appreciate it because I'm throwing it out, and then Pierre yeah. Pierre, uh, you know, reports that there's there's something yeah, to that. So that absolutely. made me feel good. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it's uh, it, it, listen. If you want to talk about faces of franchises, boy, Dylan Larkin, he's right up there. He's a Michigan guy, and he's the captain, and he's really well liked. But look. Uh, how does this play out? Like, what, what's the likelihood of an eight-year deal for Dylan Larkin to stay in Detroit that happens at some point in the months ahead? I still think that that is where it, it ends up. It, you know, it, it's been – I've been surprised already that it's not done, so maybe I am being a little naive here. Uh, I just think you look at every factor in this – um, you know, he's 26 years old, first line center. Uh, you know, I know people can get tired of kind of the hometown angle and all that stuff, but I think – the totality of Dylan Larkin and what he brings to the franchise on the ice, off the ice, the captaincy is ultimately too valuable for the Red Wings to, to let whatever that difference is. I don't know what the difference is. If it's a half million dollars, if it's a million dollars, whatever the gap is right now between his camp and the Red Wings camp, it can't, it just can't be so big that, you know, you you ignore all the other stuff. And so I think, you know, maybe it ends up that, Steve Eisman is willing to play hardball and, and we saw him take Steven Stamkos to the brink of free agency. I think that tells you all you need to know about whether he has the stomach for this. He certainly does. Um, and and I also think, you know, when you look at Dylan Larkin, I think you talk about the Brazil deal. It shows you the direction that this stuff is moving in. Does he end up with the Brazil deal? I don't know, but it does tell it should tell him, I think, that that money's out there. And at some point, something has to give the fact that he's got a full no trade clause. um, to me says if they if they didn't think that they were going to eventually figure this out uh something would have happened already once the full no trade clause kicked in i think you know steve eisman had to know that the deal the, the right deal was going to be there in the end but i could i tell you it's going to happen in a month before new year's before the trade deadline before july 1 i, I would think before july 1 but at this point that's about as confident as i'm willing to be yeah well again just one of the many uh, interesting storylines around Detroit. Max, listen, thanks for dropping by. And don't, look, as the season progresses, if the wings stay up there and autos at the bottom, you know, say hello from time to time from the penthouse. <laughs> you know, don't don't forget about the little people. Don't forget about the little people at the bottom of the standings if I'm stuck down here. Don't, don't. Don't be afraid to say hello. Look, I'm gonna, I, I'm staying, following the draft and all that. We'll, we'll, we'll keep talking uh, all the rebuild talks that we've been doing for, for years yet. No matter, how, no matter which direction this goes. <laughs> awesome. Hey, listen, enjoy uh, Kings and Wings uh, here on Monday, and uh, and I'm sure we'll get you again uh, real soon. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, uh, Julian, uh, we're really looking forward to this uh, guest dropping by the pod uh, today because uh, Justin Davis uh, has a new book that's out this week called Conflicted Scars. And I think that the title is probably uh, you know, almost self-explanatory. It gives a little window into um, you know, his career in, in hockey. And you know, what I want to do just before we bring, uh, bring him on, I'm just going to read the very beginning of the introduction to this book because I think this is a great introduction. And it reads as follows. You may have seen the cover of this book and asked yourself, why? Why would a quote-unquote average hockey player whose name barely registers with hockey fans write a book? And why would anybody bother to read it? So that's the perfect way for us to bring in uh, Justin Davis again, as I mentioned um, the, uh, the author of conflicted scars. So Justin answer that question for us. Tell us, tell us why the hockey fans that are listening to this podcast here who may not be familiar with your hockey journey in your career. Why is your book of interest to them? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the original title was, it was, um, so you want your kid to play in the NHL. So that was my initial uh, thing was I, I see all these hockey parents. My son just finished playing triple A hockey last year and they're doing everything 12 months a year, $20,000 a year to have their kid play in the NHL. And they think, I think at times that the town they live in is going to throw them a parade for producing an NHL player and everything the kid goes through is going to be fantastic. They're going to play world juniors in the NHL. And what I wanted to write a story about is what happened to me and, uh, with it being an average player, I, I know they say you played in the OHL and you got drafted, but as far as a junior hockey player and someone that played pro hockey, I'm, I'm the average player and this is the story. So I want parents to see what it's actually like behind the curtain and uh, and what they're putting their their child through and both the good things and the bad things. There's some parts of, of the book I'm really intrigued about with regards to uh, your views on the, the way you've adapted to the culture, but I'm also intrigued at at your your upbringing in the game. And you mentioned one of the earlier parts of the book about how you're you're playing in this in this community and you're doing really well, but like everyone hates you for it. Like like what's it like being this kid where you're scoring like how many goals a night? You're winning all these trophies. And you're going into games where you have like old women giving you double birds after you <laughs> score a goal. Like what's that like? Well, I think that was an era where, like I said, like if you don't play AAA hockey now and your parents aren't willing to drive you the hour, hour and a half, people think it's a form of child abuse that so you're not doing it. But back then, our parents, we played small town hockey, which was single A, and the best players would be playing AAA now played single A till they were nine or 10. So I'd score 350 goals a year. And uh, one of my good friends in Milton, he'd score 350 goals a year. And you got to the point where just the jealousy within the kids that you played with and the other centers you went to where people resented you for that. And I was told multiple times that no one from our organization is ever going to make it anywhere. So don't worry about this. And uh, I talk in the book about how it led to me walking out of the arena, just kind of, you're embarrassed. You're walking out with your head down. My parents will beat me in the car. And even with my own son, I, 
I'd always tell them if you want an MVP or an award, put it in your pocket. We'll talk about it in the car. Don't showboat and, and don't be arrogant. So all these things I figured out as a 44-year-old with three kids later, uh, the things I carried over from, from being a five or six-year-old playing hockey uh, still sit with me today. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned now you're 44. Um, and, you know, listen, I'm, I'm 45, so we're kind of like in that yeah. same age bracket. And, you know, hockey's been a part of my life, most of my life, just as it was uh, for you. And obviously now, as you look at the news cycle, pay attention to the news cycle, toxicity in hockey has really been at the forefront, uh, Justin. And I'm wondering, when is it for you that you kind of started to look back and realize like, oh, damn, maybe I was part of a toxic culture? Or did you know, like when you were a teenager, when you were in the OHL, like, did you know that some of the stuff you were involved in or, you know, were subjected to was part of a kind of a toxic culture? Or did you just say like, ah, that's, that's hockey? Yeah, I mentioned like we always used to refer to people that didn't play hockey as civilians. So like I was at a dinner party and I was there with three civilians and so and so. So I always thought I was the normal one. And these things that we did were normal. And it wasn't until I became a high school teacher and you're sitting in the office and you may say something you shouldn't or you're telling stories and you're like, people are looking at you <laughs> a little strangely. And you realize that I was I was different and this culture became normal to me. And it was almost uh, someone compared it the other day to like military, the interviewing people in the military and what it's like coming out. And that's what it felt like. And it wasn't until I started writing this at my age that I started to realize, and I even started writing this memoir. I wanted to tell people how great my time in Ottawa was, winning a Memorial Cup, what it's like to get drafted. And then as I started to write, I realized, holy crap, like I, I did this, I did this and some things weren't right. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, it's uh, I didn't realize the culture wasn't normal until I removed myself for five, ten years from the game. Um, and and to that effect, like I I think of one particular moment where you you look at uh, a guy like Akeem Aliu, who's obviously been in the news over the last little while, and how your initial thought uh, was when he was bringing up everything he had endured in his junior career, and you figured he was a guy who should probably just toughen up. I'm curious of the fact that now that you've realized that you've just you've you've realized that what you've endured in, in hockey culture has made you different from other people walking around from any of your other buddies who you've played junior hockey with or have been part of the culture with. Have they also come to that realization? And what is it like, you know, if you hear one of your your former teammates, if you still hang around with them, kind of still carry about that way, knowing that, you know, the way hockey players kind of conduct themselves Maybe it probably shouldn't be the way to conduct yourself in, in everyday society. Yeah, and I think that was the fear. I initially wrote this memoir to my kids that they were going to open up in a drawer 15 years from now and read it. And now here I am with you guys. And it's been a lot more public with the Hockey Canada stuff. So I thought when people would reach out that it's like what's said in the room stays in the room, to your point. And people have reached out and said, like, stuff I did was wrong and things that happened to me were wrong. So that's been really interesting to hear people talk about that and feel the opportunity to share. And as far as looking at Akeem Aliu and even talking to him the other, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, and just having a great conversation about it, you hear these things that he's the issue, he's the issue, all this stuff that's happening. And so you just become so ingrained in you. I played with, I had one black teammate when I was 12 years old in summer hockey. I played with probably two indigenous players while I played and you just buy into that culture and you buy into how you talk about people and the way you view people. So I think we're all coming to terms with, with how we were. And 
we wish at times, like I said to Akeem, I wish I had the guts to stand up, but it was a big risk for your career. And at that time, you you did not say anything. So uh, I don't want to be one of those people after the fact that comes out talking and say, I should have done this and I should have done this. But I'm here today because I want it to be out there. I want to talk about it. And hopefully I can use the book for some change. I have no idea that it was going to come to this. So I'm even doing um, a panel on Saturday with Akeem and uh, in Guelph and just talking about his story. And hopefully uh, we can bring that out to people in Guelph. You know, and I, and I think it's interesting. I'm going to, again, read a small excerpt. We don't want to give away everything uh, yeah. because we do want, you know, our listeners to you know, buy your book and, and to really truly understand your story. But, you know, this passage certainly got to me just coming off of uh, what Julian asked you. Um, and it says, throughout my career, I was complicit in this behavior. I never stood up to it, uh, to stop it. I was ignorant. One of my coaches used to ask an Indigenous teammate if it would be easier to send him a smoke signal than explain the drill. And anyone with an Indigenous background would be called chief or some other discriminatory slur. I heard the N-word numerous times in the dressing room, in the stands, and on the ice, and although I knew it was wrong, I wouldn't say it myself. In my mind, it wasn't my problem. One of my childhood friends, while playing hockey in Germany, had bananas thrown at him during a game, but I never asked what I could do to help. You know, what I think one of the biggest issues is, uh, is bystander intervention is is very difficult in any environment, but more so in hockey, isn't it? Like, could you maybe just explain to our listeners how difficult it is to be that one guy who stands up and says, hey guys, that's not cool to be racist, or hey guys, that's not cool to talk about women that way, because that's not, it's, it's almost impossible. You don't want to be the person who stands out. Hockey is the ultimate team game, and you don't really, it, it doesn't, create the environment that enables or empowers athletes to call each other out, right? Like can, what I, I guess what I want to do is try and explain to people how difficult it is to try and call out bad behavior in a, in an institution and environment that pretty much doesn't allow it. Well, it's a great point. And I mean, part of looking back at this, I thought this was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, surely things have changed. And then the Kyle beach situation came and I'm like, this is 2014. We're talking about that. This is happening. And no one spoke up like who. And when you talk about when you, we bring this into uh, black teammates, I mean, I had a teammate who got a bad haircut one day at Supercuts in Calgary and he was getting dressed in the dressing room and everybody knew he had a bad haircut. We waited for him to take his hat off and everybody in the room knew it. So you're telling me that this is happening to Kyle Beach in 2014, but nobody in the dressing room had any idea this stuff was happening. And it's the same with bringing this back to to the, to the racial issues in the game, no one's going to speak up because it stays in the room. And when you do speak up, look at the people that get punished for talking, right? How many people actually speak up while they're playing and they're seen as leaders and they're praised for it. Usually you're ostracized from the game and from the Kyle beach situation to Akeem situation, it's, it's tough to talk about it. It's not a world I was saying in basketball and football, you're praised for being an individual and they praise the individual. And hockey, it's just, like you said perfectly, you're part of the team and no one's bigger than the team. It's about the name on the front of the jersey and not the back of the jersey. And I think that's the huge issue uh, with everything you've talked about. Not to correct you, I think that Kyle Beach, uh, unfortunately, what he had endured, I think it was a couple a couple years earlier than 2014, if I'm okay, yeah, not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think, sure I think 2010, right? 2010? 2010? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, that's still within... 
that's like you know like it, it's too 100%. recent, right? Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I thought of my story as 1999, and you're looking back, surely it doesn't happen. And then when you look at like 2010, it's it's it, it it's not far that far ago. Um, from your vantage point, you're you're a gym, you're a, I believe you're a phys ed teacher now. Is that correct? Yes. And 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 you have children who um, have, have you put them in a game of hockey as well? Yeah, I had a son who's 16 years old, and he just finished playing AAA, and he's in his draft year, and. I think part of looking at this is you look at him and <laughs> getting to a game and forgetting his stick, or I said, like making a piece of toast and forgetting it's there and was burning the house down. Right. And I see how innocent he is. And this is all happening to us when we're 15, 16, 17 years old. And I thought I was this mature person who could endure all this stuff. And I saw parts of me and him. So that was the big part of this is I realized how innocent we are. And hockey is one of the few games where you're moving away at 15, 16, 17 years old, living with another family, and you're getting your life lessons from your teammates and, and your coaches. From the vantage point that you have, being around younger kids and, and seeing your, your own children uh, in the culture, do you sense that there's any significant change from what you endured as a player to what's happening now? And how much do you think the events of the last few years and players who have spoken out have influenced whatever change might be there. I definitely think there's been some change when we talk about the hazing stuff and I talk about the hot box and a lot of terrible stuff that happened to me in junior C or junior B that stuff, thank goodness has been taken out of the game. So I appreciate that stuff, but uh, we have a long way to go with, with other cultural things. And I mean, the game's so expensive. You just said my son plays in his draft uh, portfolio and questions he has asked. It was, who's your mental skills coach? Who's your power skating coach? Who's your, uh, who's your nutrition expert? And you're looking at, you're talking about paying $15,000 a year. So when you're looking at uh, new citizens to Canada, you're looking at um, low income families, who's able to afford to play. And that's the part of the change that we have to make the game accessible to everyone. I'll just ask one final question on my end. Um, you mentioned the fact that uh, you are going to be conducting a panel with uh, Akeem Aliou uh, this coming weekend. On top of the fact that you uh, you have the book, and I know you've been going around uh, just you know bigging up the book. I know you're on uh, Alan Walsh's podcast. I know he's your yeah. former agent once upon a time. Um, you're putting yourself in a position where you're calling attention to the fact that uh, there were a lot of bad things in hockey culture that need to be changed and there needs to be more advocacy for, for some of that stuff to be changed and for people to stand up. I would just like to know from your vantage point as someone who is developing this platform, you know, what else do you see yourself doing to call attention to the fact that there should be more change in the game of hockey and in hockey culture? Yeah, great question. And when I first, I was worried about coming out and then there's a little anxious when it came out, but said hockey forgot about me a long time ago. I'm dealing with repercussions of my injuries and, so this isn't, first of all, this is no way am I trying to make money or uh, I'm not joining the civil lawsuit. I'm not doing all these things. This isn't, I'm not an angry person trying to bring about change that way. With the panel on Saturday, I just want to, I want to learn. I'm sitting here talking about what it's like to be a black hockey player and pro hockey and junior, but I have no idea. And I know that. So part of this journey for me is learning what I can do from Akeem, learning from this podcast and talking to you guys, what I can do better. and. Hope, hopefully have some change. And the last thing, I volunteer at the Guelph Storm and they're a franchise that's doing things right right now. 
They have me as a chapel leader. I'm a player mentor. There's a police officer from the community who acts as a player liaison. So if there's an issue with uh, one of the players on the team, they report to him and it's totally separate from the coach and the general manager. So just want to encourage every team to have these uh, people around. So mental health's huge and make sure we can support players growing up in the game. So that's my initial goals. We'll see where this goes. This is a lot farther than I expected things to be. So hopefully I I can make a difference in, in just using this book as a platform. Yeah. And again, the book is Conflicted Scars, uh, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL by Justin Davis. On the cover, uh, Joe Thornton is uh, quoted as saying, Justin's book should be on the shelf of every hockey parent. So there, there's the endorsement you need from, uh, from Jumbo Joe. Uh, hey, listen, uh, Justin, really appreciate you taking a few minutes uh, to talk about this, to tell us uh, a little bit about your journey. And we do encourage uh, people that, hey, if they're interested in this, or in particular, if you've got kids in hockey, it, it seems like this is, uh, this is something for parents to read. So appreciate you taking uh, a few minutes to, uh, to drop by the podcast. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Uh, that was a great conversation with, uh, with Justin. Uh, I look forward to that book. Uh, you know, I was able to get, you and I were both able to get kind of an advanced copy of that and certainly some interesting stories. I, I, I would love to, you know, kind of almost be a fly on the wall for that, uh, event he was just talking about in Guelph with Akeem Ali. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect that connection. I didn't realize he, he got to a point where he, uh, connected with him and I really appreciated him answering the questions that, that we asked. I, I think we are both in unique positions in the changing hockey culture in which it, the sport is trying to be more and more accepting of newer perspectives and also being media people that we are obviously with the varying experiences is not lost on me that like we host a podcast for a prominent platform on a Monday and we are two persons of color doing it. So the fact that we were able to get that interview and ask him the questions and 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 not and obviously we we put race into it as well. It, it has to be involved. But the fact that we were in that position to do that, that's not lost on me. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that we were able to handle the questions as well as we did. And I'm pretty satisfied with how Justin did as well. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? You're right. And I, although I do think 
as much as you and I, we try and represent the kind of the new face of hockey. I made a huge mistake when I dropped a Yacht Rock reference earlier in the show. That doesn't like, help. That doesn't help. All be That's not progressive. <laughs> it's not progressive. What was are, I doing? Are you going to go into NHL locker rooms now and just like ask players? Just be like, hey, man, give me your best Yacht Rock, man. Give yeah. me your I'm favorite. I'm going to go to Jake like, Sanderson. I, I bet 20 year old Jake players, Sanderson. <laughs> Maybe Jeff would know. Maybe his dad would know. I, I, I saw him the other day. Yeah, absolutely. I bet you he would know. He's in his 40s oh like I am. God. Yeah. See, I've reached the age. When I broke into this industry, Julian, I remember I was around the same age as, you know, Marty Havlat and Mar- Marion Hosa and, like, uh, J- uh, yeah, I was a few years older than Jason Spezza. But, like, like those guys would all come in and, you know, I, I could kind of relate to them. Like, one of my favorite things ever, I got a PlayStation 2. I oh, secured man. a PlayStation 2 before Martin Havlat. Oh, and, word? Like, I, and I was like, man, I... I can't believe I got so now I walk into a room. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm the where's the coach's room? I can go, I can go relate. Hey DJ, is your back hurting today? God, my back is sore. Man, yeah, that's I'm at that point. That's now, how I feel like now. Breaking into the league and covering teams. I'm looking at guys, I'm like, oh my god, Mackenzie Weger and I are like the same age. Yeah, enjoy it, man. Oh my enjoy god. it. Soak it. It goes by fast because all of a sudden you're going to be like, I'm. well, you're not the same age as, you know, obviously Daryl Sutter's a bit older, but, but like at some point you're going to be around this game and you're like, I'm the same age as like, now I'm the same age as parents of the players. Like, you know, like a Jake Sanderson's dad, Jeff, well, he's a few years older than me, but in the ballpark, other people's parents, like I'm that age. And I yeah. think, I think Chris Johnston on uh, the podcast that uh, you can listen to through the athletic Chris Johnston show. We were talking about players' ages, and I mentioned uh, how his age is the same. It might be the same age as Craig Anderson, or I think Craig Anderson might be a little older. And Craig's forty-one. CJ was, yeah, CJ was saying that uh, with Craig Anderson, is he not playing? Or is he he's still in the league? He's not playing. I don't remember what he's doing, but uh, Craig he stonewalled Ottawa on opening night, so he's very much playing. I'm sorry about that. Sorry, you can tell where my priorities are at. But, like, I think he's, like, the only player in the league who is older than CJ. I think he's the only player in the league still playing who's older than CJ. So once he leaves, like, CJ is older than everybody. He becomes older than everybody. Yeah, that's me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I forgot about Craig Anderson doing his thing. uh, And and sorry, Ottawa fans. (laughs) What are you doing not watching Ottawa Buffalo opening night? What are your priorities? Anyway, listen. We usually do... (laughs) We usually do a little multiple choice segment, uh, but you listen, we had two guests today. We're, uh, we're going to bump multiple choice to our bonus segment on, on Apple Podcasts. So if you're uh, not a subscriber with us on Apple Podcasts, this is a great opportunity for you to kind of sample our, our stuff over there. And uh, you know, with Apple Podcasts, you, you get all of our bonus content. So we have um, you know bonus content from this show, other shows uh, under the athletic umbrella. So with uh, Athletic Audio Plus, you get a 30-day free trial that is 99 cents a month after that. So you're going to head on over there, get the bonus content. Uh, that's pretty much all the time we have for this episode. We want to thank everybody for listening to the Athletic Hockey Show. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review. We'd appreciate that. Main question I have for you, Julian. You, you completed your first true road trip for the Athletic, right? This weekend? 
So technically it's my second because um, I did go, uh, remember, I was in Ottawa like a couple months back watching uh, Canadians uh, Sense. That's right. You did come The second Ottawa. one. Yeah. yeah. We, we were okay. sitting next to each other in the press conference room waiting for DJ Smith and Thomas Shabbat. That's right. That's right. Um, I guess my question is, have you filed your expenses already? Oh, I'm doing that as soon as we get off. There you go. That's a veteran. That's a, a, a travel veteran files within a day or two. Don't let that yes. stuff hang around. There you go. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, want to remind everybody that um, you can also subscribe to The Athletic for a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show.